Thank you. The best introduction I've ever received. <laughs> In this Truth and Life conference, we are, as you know, examining what it means to walk in wisdom. And the topic we come to this morning, like last night, is one that, again, affects us all, like Steve's yesterday morning in speech and Dr. MacArthur's overview of the two ways that are set before us. If you're going to walk in wisdom, it is going to affect every category of life, including the one that we come to this morning, a crucial issue, one that takes most of your time and will consume most of your life. It is the matter of work. We spend the majority of our lives working. Now, for four or five years as a student, maybe for some of you uh, one or two more, spending countless hours in class, studying, reading, worrying. Uh, no, wait, that's not part of work, sorry. But you're going to spend a lot of time working right now, preparing. And after you graduate, if you are the average worker, you will spend 47 hours a week working. And you will work full-time from the age of 22 to the age of 67. That's 45 years full-time working. Although work is a constant part of our lives, most people think very little about it and frankly have almost no concept of its value. Sadly, it's true even within the church. If you ask the average Christian, you'll hear a number of grossly defective views about the issue of work. Let me just give you a couple just so you're aware of them. They're out there. Maybe you've embraced some of these flawed views of work. One view, frankly, looks at work and sees it as part of the curse. We just have to do this because of what Adam did. Another flawed view, many have embraced the predominant view of our culture that hard work is really something you want to do everything you can to avoid. And if you can't avoid it entirely, then just tolerate it until each weekend comes and an early retirement. A third flawed view, and there are those who work very hard, but their work is all directed at selfish motives. They work really hard, but it is to feed their pride or the idol of materialism. Another flawed view is that to see your work as simply what you do when you punch in from nine to five, that's work. And then after that time, all of your time can be devoted to your own pleasure and to your own enjoyment. That's a flawed view of work. A final view that's out there in the Christian church is to see your work as a purely secular endeavor. To see what you do in the church as spiritual and eternal, but what you do on the job as something you merely have to do to keep body and soul together here and to live in the world. Contrast those views with those of the reformers. They understood what the scripture teaches about this issue. Listen to John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Each individual, do you hear that? Each individual, you, has his own kind of living or career assigned to him by the Lord. There is no employment so mean, so sordid, as not to appear truly respectable and to be deemed highly important in the sight of God. Not a single one. Unless you're doing something that's causing people to sin, and I pray and hope that you will not do that, as a Christian you won't do that, then whatever you're doing falls into this category. Your work, whatever it is, matters to God. This perspective was once pervasive within the Christian community. In fact, it was referred to as the Protestant work ethic. Historically, Christians who understood the Scripture have been the most diligent, the most creative, and among, often among the most successful in their fields. 
But this is another one of those foundational truths that that was recovered under the, the exposition of the Reformation, the exposition of God's Word as the Reformers taught it, that has been lost to today's church. Work is a divine gift and calling. Your work is a divine gift and calling. Do you truly understand the origin, the value, the reasons you should work? Do you know how to work each day, whether now as a student or in your career after graduation, in a way that honors God? You need to know. This is what you're going to spend the bulk of your life doing. That's what I want us to consider together this morning. In a very practical and yet profound way, the book of Proverbs lays out for us the key principles for our work. Those principles that should govern how we think about and how we perform our work, whether it's your work now as a student, your work now as an employee, as a, as a part-time employee somewhere during the school year or during the summers when you have a full-time job, or whether it's after graduation, these principles are all the same. They govern all of those categories. So let's look at them together. Key principles that should govern your work. The first principle that the wisdom of Proverbs teaches us is that work is a gift that reflects God's character. Work is a gift that reflects God's character. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 is where we'll begin this morning. In this chapter, Solomon personifies wisdom as he does a number of places throughout this book. He gives wisdom a voice, a, a persona, and a voice. And so in the first three verses of chapter 8, wisdom is described as a woman calling out to people everywhere to listen to her, to listen to her voice. The rest of the chapter contains her speech, which actually consists of several sections. We had time, and I wish we did. We'd walk through those sections together. But I want you to, to skip to... The section that begins in verse 22, you'll notice in, if your Bible is broken into paragraphs, many, in many cases this will be broken into a, its own section, its own paragraph, verses 22 to 31. Here, wisdom is speaking, personified, and wisdom explains that her origin is in the character of God. The wisdom you want is found in God, or as we discovered in 1 Corinthians one in Christ. Wisdom goes on to say that God possessed her before creation. Notice how, how wisdom talking puts this. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. Pro Proverbs and Solomon and ultimately God himself wants you to know that wisdom existed before, before anything but God, because wisdom is in God. In fact, God used wisdom, and this is where Lady Wisdom goes on to instruct us here, God used wisdom in creating everything. Apart from wisdom, not a single atom came into existence. Look at verse 27. Not only was wisdom before the creation, wisdom was completely, totally involved in the creation. When he established the heavens, when he did begin to create, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, that idea of, of the horizon set, a globe on which we live. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed. In other words, when God created, wisdom was there enabling God as he created everything. Not a trace of order that exists in our universe happened without 
wisdom. Verse 29, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, when he established its stability and the order in which it would move and, and circulate through our solar system and through the universe. What this chapter is saying is that wisdom has its greatest credential in the creation itself. Now, Solomon's primary point here is the value of wisdom. He's saying for you and for me to thrive in God's world that he created, we must have wisdom. Why? Because nobody knows the creation better than wisdom. You simply cannot live and thrive in this world made by God's wisdom without his wisdom. But to make that point, Solomon reminds us that God exercised wisdom, listen carefully, as he worked in creation, and as we learn in the New Testament, through his son. God worked to create. Notice the expressions, verse 22, the Lord possessed wisdom before his works of old. And then there are all these verbs that describe God's work. Verse 26, he made the earth. Verse 27, he established the heavens, inscribed a circle in the face of the deep. Verse 28, he made firm the skies, fixed the springs. Verse 29, set the boundary of the sea, marked out the foundations of the earth. Notice verse 30. Then I was beside him, wisdom said, as a master workman. I was working with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Wisdom worked alongside God as God worked to create. And notice in verse 31, wisdom found special delight in man, the apex of God's creation. Now here's the point I want you to see. Work was not a result of the fall. No, in fact, it is part of the fundamental character of God. He worked in creation. But God didn't stop working in creation. He continues to work to this day. In John 5, verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now. You say, well, everything's created. What does God continue to do? Well, in the work of providence, God continues to sustain all things and to direct them to the ends for which he made them. And of course, God is continually involved in the work of redemption, which is not yet complete. The message of the Bible is that God is redeeming a people by his Son, for his Son, to his own glory. God is working and God created us to work just like he works. Now think about that text in Genesis 1.26 when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There, there are many things included in that concept, but don't miss the one that immediately follows and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that works on the earth. You were created like God to work. And when you work, you reflect the image of God in which you were made. That's why Adam worked before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. Before the fall, there was work. Why? Because it reflects God, and we were made in the image of God. It wouldn't be an overstatement to say that this concept found in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 of God creating us to work and of putting Adam in the garden to work really serves as the foundation for all that Proverbs is going to teach us about work. It is true, and this is what you have to get in your mind. After the fall, God cursed work, and it became a struggle. Think of it this way. After the fall is when work became work. So now... It is a fight. It's a fight against a cursed earth. We work by the sweat of our brow. 
But here's the good news. After God reverses the curse, and after he makes all things new in a new heavens and a new earth, in eternity we will still work. Revelation 22.3 says, There will no longer be any curse, but his slaves will serve him. Why? Because to work is to be like God, and we were made in his image to reflect it. That means work itself, think about this for a moment, work itself is a divine gift to mankind. It's a gift to you. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's a general statement. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 19 makes it more specific. God has empowered man to rejoice in his work. This is the gift of God. Your work is a gift. It's not a drudgery. It's a gift of God. Again, listen to another reformer. This is Martin Luther, who understood and taught what became known as the Protestant work ethic. Listen to this quote. I love this. He says, your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it, and through it, he wants to bestow his blessing on you. The world does not consider work a blessing. Therefore, it flees and hates it. But the pious who fear the Lord labor with a ready and cheerful heart, for they know God's command and will. Thus, a pious farmer sees Psalm 128.2 written on his wagon and plow. A cobbler, that is a, a repairer of shoes, sees it on his leather and all. A laborer sees it on his wood and iron. Here's Psalm 128.2. When you eat of the fruit of your hands you will be happy, and it will be well with you. Luther goes on to say, the world inverts the thought and says, miserable you will be, and it will not be well with you, for these things must forever be endured and borne. But they say, happy are those who lead a life of leisure, and without labor have the wherewithal to live. Luther says, you know what the world says? The best thing in the world would be for somebody to die and leave me a fortune so I didn't have to work. You understand that is a pagan idea? God works. He gave you the gift of work. He made you to work. Our souls are most satisfied when we're engaged in meaningful work. In fact, you have been specifically gifted by God for work. He shaped you in your mother's womb and uniquely gifted you to serve him and to serve others. Don't ever forget, students, work is a gift that reflects the very nature and character of who God is. A second principle that Proverbs teaches us about this issue of work, equally important, is that work is a command that reflects God's will. Work is a command that reflects God's will. Turn over to chapter 6. Dr. MacArthur touched on this passage. Proverbs chapter 6. And beginning in verse 6 and running down through verse 11, for the first time in this book, we meet one of the fools of Proverbs. He's called in verse 6, the sluggard. You kind of get a real picture of that from the word itself, don't you? He, he moves and acts like a slug. He's a sluggard. This is a person who is habitually lazy, disinclined to work. Now, what's a sluggard like? I, I dare say there has never been a person who has read this section and said, oh, that's me, I'm sluggard. Nobody volunteers for that title. So how do you know? How, how do you know if you are if you qualify as a lazy person? Well, there are, in Proverbs, three qualities that distinguish a sluggard. One of them is in this passage, and it's this. A, a lazy person procrastinates starting his work. Look at verse 9. 
how long will you lie down, O sluggard? How long? When will you rise from your sleep? Now get the picture. The picture here is is of an agricultural society, which of course was what it was 900 years before Christ, in which rising early, in that kind of culture, rising early was imperative. But the lazy person, the sluggard, sleeps in instead. The point is, the lazy person won't begin things. When? How long? He procrastinates, and as a result of that, he doesn't want to commit to a definite time when he's going to begin his work. You'll notice verse 10 begins with quotes. That's because here's the sluggard's response to that question. When are you going to start? When are you going to get busy? And here's how the sluggard responds in verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding in the hands to rest. Notice, a little, a little, a little. What I want you to see is the lazy person doesn't refuse to work He just postpones it. He procrastinates beginning his work. In this context, yes, look, I know it's planting season. I know that. And soon, soon I'm going to start. Let's put it in a little more familiar context. I know, I know that huge paper that the professor assigned at the beginning of the semester is due tomorrow. That project I should have been working on for weeks. Yes, I know it's due tomorrow, and I'm going to start it just as soon as I finish this Netflix show. (laughs) Hits a little close to home, doesn't it? Derek Kidner says of the sluggard, he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders, so by inches and minutes his opportunity slips away. Listen, laziness is characterized, first of all, by procrastinating starting work. There's a second characteristic of the lazy or the sluggard in Proverbs. It's not found in this text, but it's this. A lazy person often fails to finish his work often fails to finish his work. After delaying as long as he can to start something, it's just too much work, and it just takes too much time, and so the impulse that got him started finally dies before he completes the job. Here are two references that drive this home. Chapter 12, verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey, Here's a guy who finally realized, you know, if I'm going to eat, I've got to have food, so I'm going to go hunting. And then he pulls himself together, and he gets out there, and he hunts, and he cleans the animal, and he's slowing down all the time because this is a lot of work. This is more than I imagined. And finally he says, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to go do something else for a while, and I'll come back and, and roast that a little later. And it spoils before he gets to it. Or chapter 19, verse 24, even more picturesque. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not bring it back to his mouth. He he can't even bring his his tortilla chip back from the salsa. (laughs) Like, too much work. Even his food gets cold before he finishes. He doesn't finish what he starts. A lazy person doesn't start he postpones and procrastinates secondly a lazy person fails to finish what he does start and a third (coughs) excuse me a third quality that marks a lazy person is that he regularly makes excuses for both he makes excuses he rationalizes his laziness in fact keep your finger here we're coming back to proverbs 6 but you got to see this one look at chapter 22 chapter 22 And verse 13. The sluggard says, this is is his excuse why he's not going to work. There's a a lion outside. Now, you read that even today, and you go, "That's, that's silly. What's he talking about? That is a ridiculous excuse. He says, I will be killed in the streets. I can't do it. 
It's a ridiculous excuse, but he doesn't see it as ridiculous. And frankly, he even comes to believe his own ridiculous excuses. Listen, if you make excuses for why you don't start your work and why you don't finish your work, they may seem reasonable to you, but they're just as ridiculous. And here's the thing. People may try to persuade you that this is a problem, but you know what the sluggard does? Listen to chapter 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. In other words, roommates, RDs, and others say, listen, this is a problem. And the sluggard says, no, no, you just don't understand. You don't understand, you know, I, I just need more sleep. You, you just don't understand. I, you know, this happened and this happened. And, and he's wiser in his own eyes than seven people who can say, no, this is a problem. The lazy person's life becomes as hopelessly tangled as a briar patch. Listen to this picturesque language in chapter 15, verse 19. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Eventually, the lazy person's life becomes so disordered that it becomes irreversible. Now go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 11. Keep giving excuses, don't start working, don't finish your work, and keep giving excuses, and here's what happens in verse 11. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. The lazy person wakes up one day to discover that poverty has arrived and taken everything from him as if by force. Keep your finger here again, but turn over to chapter 24 because there's a description of exactly what this looks like in the ancient context, but I want you to think of the context in which you live. Proverbs 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. This is his work. This is what he does. This is how they supported themselves. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. He doesn't fix things. He doesn't repair things. He doesn't keep them up. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instructions. Here it is again. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding the hands to rest, a little, I'm going to get to it. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. Now, what is the remedy for laziness? Go back now to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, and look at verse 6. Solomon says, here's the remedy. Consider the hardworking ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Look at the patterns of the ant's behavior. Consider them and you will gain wisdom. Now the ant here, he's using the very common in Israel harvester ant which stores grain in its nest. And he uses this ant to teach the lazy person several remedies for laziness. Really three of them. Here are the remedies for laziness. Number one, don't wait to be forced to work. Discipline yourself. Don't wait to be forced to work. Discipline yourself. Verse seven, this ant, which having no chief officer or ruler, works you see with the harvester ant there is a social structure but there's no clear hierarchy of command he's underscoring here that we are to work hard when there's nobody making us there's no deadline there's no professor threatening to ruin your grade there's no boss threatening to fire you you're to work hard because you're called to work hard (laughs) By the way, some people work hard on their job because there's someone there ordering them and holding them accountable and they know that they can't have fun without the money they make from their jobs. But then when they leave work and there's no boss, they manifest their laziness in their utter lack of care for their own personal lives. Listen, when you get off work, when you check out, if you're a Christian, you must still work hard. You're called to work. You're, you need to work hard to make sure your life is orderly and reflects God himself. 
There's a second remedy for laziness here. Don't wait for a crisis or a deadline. Plan ahead. Don't wait for a crisis or a deadline. Plan ahead. That's the point of verse 8. This ant, this little ant who has no leader, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The ants work hard during the grain harvest, which in Israel is two months in the early summer. They know winter's coming. They know that if they don't take care of it now, they're going to be without. And so they plan ahead and work when the work is there. So should you. Don't wait for that crisis. Don't wait for the deadline, that assignment that's too huge to be done in a week and you knew about it at the beginning of the semester and it's due tomorrow and you start at 10 p.m. That's a form of laziness. Number three, a third remedy is don't be lazy. Work hard. Work hard. Because this is how God provides for you. You know, God provides for all of his creatures. Psalm 104 says God provides for everything he made. Everything looks to him for, his, for food. But how does God provide for us and for them? He does so through the ant's hard work at the right time in the right way. Now let's step back from this text and get the big point. Solomon is saying, listen carefully, that work is a moral imperative. Hard work is a moral imperative. Laziness is the way of fools. Hard work is the way of the wise. And as, as Dr. MacArthur reminded us Wednesday night in the Proverbs, wisdom always has moral overtones. The way of the wise is the way of the one who knows his God. God makes this even clearer, I think, in the great summary outline of our moral duty to him in the Ten Commandments. The Fourth Commandment demands that we devote ourselves to work. You ever thought of it that way? Listen to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's where most people sort of say, yeah, got that, okay, we need to worship. And New Testament era, that's on the Lord's day. No, listen. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Now, like the other nine commandments, as we noted last night, this, this commandment summarizes a category of life and reminds us that God has supreme authority over that category. What is it here? The fourth commandment reminds us that God is Lord over our time. And he demands that we set aside the time prescribed for worship and that we devote most of our time to work. Work is not an option. God commands that you spend the vast majority of your week working. That doesn't mean that you have to work at your job six days a week, but it is a command to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Paul says, when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says that those Christians, listen carefully, those Christians who refuse to work in order to support themselves must be disciplined out of the church. Treat a guy in the church who isn't working like an unbeliever because Unbelievers do that, but believers don't. It's not surprising that, that our Lord worked at a regular job for 17 years of his very short life. From the time he was 13 and became uh, a son of the commandment until he was 30. In fact, in Mark 6, 3, he's called the carpenter. The word, by the way, carpenter, literally means craftsman. It's a very broad word, like our English word builder. It can include the work of a carpenter, a mason, even woodworking. Justin Martyr, who was born just after the death of the apostle John, wrote this. He was close to Christ's life, and, and this was his recollection. When Jesus was among men, he made plows and yokes and other farm implements. Commenting on that, 
J. Oswald Sanders, in his excellent book, Spiritual Leadership, says this. He saw no incongruity in the Lord of glory standing in a saw pit, laboriously cutting the thick logs into planks, or using a plane and a hammer. He was a carpenter, a working man who earned his living, as others of his contemporaries, by manual skill. If it was not beneath the Son of God to work as an artisan, then surely it is beneath none of his children. He has imparted to work both dignity and nobility. And of course, no one ever worked harder than our Lord would have worked. No one worked harder at his three and a half year ministry than he did. What I want you to see is even Jesus working is a part of the gospel. Because God made you to work. He commanded you to work, and me as well. But we have all too often been lazy. We have not carried through on that divine requirement that reflects the character of God. But Jesus, our official representative, worked. And he worked hard like we should have worked in our place. And now that we've been justified, that we wear his righteousness, we should work hard because to work hard is to be like Jesus Christ. So work is a gift that reflects God's character and work is a command that reflects God's will. A third principle we learn from Proverbs is that work is a duty that must be done God's way. Work is a duty that must be done God's way. Proverbs has a lot to say about how we're to work. In fact, Solomon identifies a number of them, but there are three primary ways that I think we learn in Proverbs we are to do our work. The, the focus of what he has to say about how to work really falls into these three categories. By time, we can look at a few others, but I think that most of the verses are within these three categories. If we're going to work God's way, first of all, we must work with diligence. You heard it this morning from the alumni who are giving you their testimonies, with diligence. You understand you are growing up in a culture which laziness is pervasive, and frankly, in which many of your peers have a reputation for laziness, for working harder to boost their following on social media than their skills, for investing more time and energy and entertainment than study. Now, I am confident that is not as big an issue here at Masters as it is in other places. But Solomon is warning his sons, and he's warning us, that we are all susceptible to the temptation to laziness. But those who have godly wisdom will work with diligence. Turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, or a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Now, you'll notice at the top of the heading of this chapter, many of you will see this, this is part of a larger section. It's a section contrasting the righteous with the wicked. In verse 4, we learn that the righteous are diligent in their work. What does that mean? The Hebrew word for diligent really carries three related connotations. First of all, it, it speaks of carefulness, doing what you do with excellence. It speaks of hard work, of, of striving, pouring all of your energy. And thirdly, there's a context or a nuance to this word that implies persistence. You keep at it. So a commitment to excellence, working hard, striving with all that's in you, and keep on doing so. That's diligent. And although this, like the rest of the Proverbs, is not an ironclad promise, these are truisms, this is normally how life in God's moral universe works, in God's providence, we learn here that diligence often leads to success and prosperity. Now, in verse 5, 
the harvest is again the grain harvest, early summer, and the righteous, here's his point, the righteous have the wisdom and self-discipline to overcome the temptation to laziness, which we all have, and to work when they should. But the lazy person, on the other hand, who's classified in this, in this section as wicked, brings shame on himself and his relatives because he doesn't work and then he's without. By the way, there's not necessarily shame in poverty. God in his providence may bring circumstances to bear in a person's life that are beyond their control and we're told about them in Scripture. But Scripture is equally clear that if that poverty results from laziness and an unwilling to work, it is a shame. Turn over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 23. In all labor there is profit. Now that all labor could be meaning in all kinds of labor, kind of different categories of labor, or it may mean just all work. And perhaps both are in are, as Proverbs are prone to do, implied here. In all labor, there is profit. There's benefit. Work, and there's benefit from that work. But mere talk leads only to poverty. You know what this proverb is saying? Don't be one of those people who is always talking about what you're going to do, what you're going to start, what you're going to accomplish. Just get to work. There's benefit in work. Go over to chapter 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Wise plans, this is the point, wise plans combined with the diligence to carry those plans out that leads certainly to advantage, or again, the word is to profit. Not meaning necessarily financial profit, but to benefit. But the lazy person, to avoid the hard work involved in planning, the hard work of the work itself, he's always chasing ill-conceived, get-rich-quick schemes. And that invariably leads to lacking the necessities of life. That's the concept of poverty here. Go over to chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. A person who is uniquely skilled, who has worked hard. Yes, they have innate gifts from God, but they've worked hard to refine those those skills and to make them the best that they can be he will become known for his skills his work will earn a reputation and be sought out the point is work hard be diligent to take the skills God has given you and be as absolutely good at what you do as you can be as a person chapter 28 verse 19 He who tills his land will have plenty of food. But he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. In other words, look, you, you can either work with what you've got, work hard with the land you have, work hard with, with the, the skills God has given you, and that will be for your benefit, or you can always be chasing the dream of something bigger and better. And you're going to have poverty in plenty instead of food in plenty. A faithful man, verse 20 said, says, will abound with blessings. If you're simply faithful to work hard with what God has given you, the skills he's given you, then you will abound with blessings. But he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. You know, our world is filled with people who are incredibly gifted, but who are never diligent with those gifts and they, they while away their lives and their gifts, and they never amount to anything. Whereas people who maybe don't have gifts to those same levels, you've seen this in your, you've seen right here at Masters. People who don't have the same level of gifts, 
invest their entire energy in working hard, and they are the ones who excel. Why? Because that's how God has wired the moral universe. This is not always true, but it is often true. To do your work in a biblical way, you must do it with diligence. Let me just make this really practical for you where you are right now as a student. Do you realize that the Lord doesn't measure your work as a student by the grade you get? Why? Because he gave you the academic ability that you have. That's, that's nothing. He measures it by your diligence. So if, if you are diligent and you make C's, if you work hard and all you can manage is a C, then you have been successful in the sight of God because you have been faithful with what you've been given. But if you are an A student and you do so, but you just do enough to get by just to make the grade, the A grade, yeah, but you're, you're not really invested, you're not diligent, you're not working hard, then in God's sight, you're not as successful as that C student who works hard. And I can promise you this, the same thing will hold true at the judgment. At the judgment, the Lord is not going to determine your reward or mine based on our results. Why? Because I don't have any control of the results. He sovereignly decides whether my work succeeds or whether it doesn't. What he will measure me and you on is our faithfulness with what he's given us. Were you consistently diligent to use the gifts and opportunities that he gave you to, your, to their maximum potential? Work with diligence. Secondly, if you're going to work in a way that's God's way, you must work with integrity. Turn over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. Again, we're in a section contrasting the righteous and the wicked. And verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. This principle, by the way, is so important that it occurs in the law it occurs in the prophets, and it occurs here in the wisdom literature. In fact, this proverb occurs two more times in, in the book of Proverbs in a slight varying form. The context is this. Again, you have to remember, this is 900 years before Christ. It is an agricultural world. And in an agricultural world, the primary commodities were grain and vegetables. So the one piece of equipment crucial for commerce was a simple set of balanced scales, like the scales of justice. On one side, you placed what was purchased. On the other, the weights. The buyer, of course, depended on the reliability of those scales. You understand that. You understand the importance of trustworthy measurements. You, you trust them all the time. You pull up to that if you have a car here, you pull up to the gas station to pump $10 worth of gas in your car, and you are assuming, trusting, that that pump that says that it gave you $10 of gas actually measured out 10 gallons and not 5 gallons. Every gas pump is marked once it's been tested against the standard. And then you'll notice it's sealed. Why? To keep dishonest station owners from tampering with it to make more money. This was the same problem that existed in the ancient world. The Hebrew word here in verse 1, <coughs> excuse me, the Hebrew word for false is the word deceptive. You see, you could, you could deceptively alter your balances, that set of scales. How? Well, it, it's composed of a cross member and two pans. You could you could either add weight deceptively to the pan that was to your advantage, or you could take away, shave off the bottom some weight from the pan that was to your advantage. You could do it either way. You could slightly bend the crossbow, which would alter the measurement some. In other words, it's a deceptive set of scales. Notice what Solomon says, though. A deceptive set of scales is an abomination to the Lord. They excite his moral outrage and justice. Look at the second half of the verse. But a just weight is his delight. 
God was, by the way, you'll notice the weights mattered, not just the scale. God was equally outraged if they altered the weights they used to measure. And in the ancient world, weights were simply stones, for the most part, marked with their weight. And merchants carried their weights with them in a pouch so that, so that they could test the, the other merchants to make sure they were accurate. But here's what happened. This is what Solomon's writing about. Unscrupulous merchants carried two sets of weights. Heavier ones for their purchases and lighter ones for their sales. It was deceptive. And God found this business practice repulsive. On the other hand, notice what he says. Balance scales and an unaltered weight, literally the Hebrew text says, finds his favor Listen, God cares about the integrity with which you carry out your business, your work. Turn over to chapter 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales, righteous balance and scales, literally. In other words, the ones, the ones that reflect the standard. If it says it's 10 pounds, it's 10 pounds. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. Now what's interesting about this verse is the context. It's in a context about what government does, what the king does. In other words, this proverb is saying not only that the individual should be careful in this way, but when government administers the system of weights and measures that are used in business, it is operating on God's behalf. The point is, God demands that we be completely honest in all of our business dealings, in all of our work. You must never use deception to protect yourself, protect your business, grow your business, increase your profits, you must always speak the truth. You must charge an honest price. You must deliver the goods and services as promised for the price agreed upon. If you're an employer, you must treat your employees with justice and kindness. Pay a fair wage. Never take advantage of them. If you're an employee, you must work hard for the benefit of that company. You must not pilfer from your employer, whether you take his clients or his stuff or his time by doing social media stuff on work time, which is an epidemic in our country. That's stealing. God is morally outraged by all deceptive, dishonest business practices, and so should we be. But God's favor is for the one who works with diligence and with integrity. Thirdly, to do our work in a biblical way, we must work with humility. We must work with humility. You need to work hard, but you also must acknowledge God's sovereignty in your work. You see, God's the one who gave you the gifts you have. I, I remind myself, not because I'm specially gifted, but because this is a temptation to us all, I remind myself often of what Paul says to the Corinthians when he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Ask yourself that question. What do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer is nothing. There are no gifts you have that you didn't receive. There's absolutely nothing. Your gifts are from God. The plans that you've made, the results of your efforts, God is sovereign over all those things, and we must bow in humility to God's sovereign purpose. If you're still there in Proverbs 16, go back to verse 1. In the first nine verses of Proverbs 16, we see God's sovereignty over all things. Although these verses are not directly about work, the principles that are here are supposed to shape our understanding of the world, including our work. And notice verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 
plans is a word that that means to place things in order. We understand that word. We do this all the time. In every area of life, including our work, we make plans. But the point of the proverb is that in the end, God directs our plans, our efforts, even, you ready for this? The answer of our tongue. Even what we say in answer to questions to accomplish his purpose. He's sovereign over all things, and humility acknowledges that. Sadly, there are too many people whom God has granted the capacity to to be successful and to make wealth in our world who who take it completely upon themselves as if they did something when in fact there are people who are more gifted, brighter, who haven't had as much success because that was God's purpose and plan. We must bow to God's sovereignty. We must, in humility, acknowledge that. Look at verse 3. We must acknowledge it beforehand when we're making our plans. Commit your works to the Lord. The word commit literally in Hebrew is roll. Roll your works to the Lord. In other words, roll the actions you have planned on the Lord in trust and dependence. Leave their ultimate accomplishment to God. When you plan and act in dependence on God, this proverb says your plans will be established. He will establish your efforts doesn't mean he's going to make everything happen you've ever planned, but it means he will bring to reality all of those plans you've made that fall within his sovereign purpose. Chapter 16, verse 9, I love this one. The mind of man plans his way. His way, meaning his, his life direction. This is a sort of all-sweeping, all-encompassing statement. The mind of man plans the entire direction of his life, but the Lord directs his steps. And what's really interesting is in the Hebrew text, the word steps is not plural, it's singular. The Lord will direct his step. You see, we lay out our entire life plan. Some of you have. I did when I was in. I went to college planning to be an attorney. In fact, for three years, I was in pre-law. I'd already started looking into law schools. And God had other plans. He put me in the hospital for a couple of weeks and gave me a chance to think through my life and its direction. And here I am. We plan out our entire life direction. But notice, the Lord directs establishes and orders every single step. You can plan out your entire life to the last detail. You heard the members of the alumni this morning talk about the fact that their lives haven't worked out. Even their work hasn't worked out exactly as they'd planned, but that's okay. You make your plans, but you recognize that God will have the last word. He will determine the best path. He will establish every single step for your good, believer, and for his glory. So pray for wisdom. Make wise plans and work hard to execute those plans, but with humility acknowledge his sovereignty over your plans and your efforts to carry out those plans and the results and the success of your efforts. So, work must be done God's way. It is a duty that must be done His way with diligence, with integrity, with humility. There's a fourth principle in Proverbs about our work, and I'm really just going to give you a little list here because I want you to think about this. We don't have time to go into it. Fourth and finally, Work is a tool that fulfills God's purposes. Work is a tool that fulfills God's purposes. You see, many who work hard do so solely for themselves, for their comfort, for their satisfaction, for their financial success, for their advancement. But as Christians, those cannot be the primary reasons that we work. There are far more compelling biblical, divine purposes. And again, let me just give you the list. And I'm going to give you the list. I'll just read the verses. You can jot down the references and look them up later. But this is why you should work. This isn't comprehensive, but it's seriously representative of why you should work. Number one, to care for your own needs and enjoyment. 
to care for your own needs and enjoyment. Chapter 27, verse 23 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. Work hard to to look after what your responsibilities are. Verse 27 of that chapter says, And as a result of that, there will be goat's milk enough for your food. In other words, you manage what God's given you, you work hard at it, and in doing so, you will provide for your needs. Psalm 128, verse 2, you shall eat of the fruit of your hands. You meet your own needs by your own effort, by God blessing that effort that you have invested. Those verses imply that you ought to work to meet your own needs. The New Testament states it directly and explicitly. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 says, work with your hands, verse 12, so that you will not be in any need. But you know it's also okay to use what you earn in work for your enjoyment, within balance, of course. But the Old Testament testifies to this. Ecclesiastes talks about the fact, chapter 5, verse 19, that, that work is a gift and enjoying the fruit of your labor, verses 18 and 19 there, is from God. The New Testament says the same thing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world, <coughs> excuse me, to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things just for our needs? No, to enjoy. It's okay. We are to work to meet our needs and to enjoy the fruit of our labor as God's good gift. A second purpose God has for work is to provide for your dependents. The people that you're responsible for, obviously in your home, your children. Verse 27 of Proverbs 27 says, there will be goat's milk enough for your food, your food, for the food of your household and sustenance for your maidens. Proverbs 31 15 says that the excellent wife rises while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. We work, folks, in order not only to provide for our own needs, but the needs of those who are dependent on us. The New Testament, again, underscores this. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Parents are supposed to care for their kids. And when our parents, 1 Timothy 5 says, when our parents and grandparents get to a point where they are no longer able to work and they become our dependents, the man who doesn't care for them is worse than an unbeliever. So we're to care for our dependents. Thirdly, a third purpose God has for work is to benefit others. To benefit others. Ephesians 6, verse 7 He's talking to slaves, and he says this remarkable thing. He says, with good will be a slave. Literally, with good will slaving, the Greek text says. With a spirit of good will toward your master. Even if you're a slave, serve with a genuine concern for his welfare, that he would prosper. Do you care if the business where you work is successful or not? Do you look for ways to improve it? Paul says you should. You should do your work for the benefit of those you serve. This is part of God's design. In fact, on the larger scale, I wish I had time to develop this, you should see your work. Whatever it is you do, you should find a way to understand how that work is an expression of God's common grace to the rest of the creatures on this planet. Because it is. There's a fourth purpose for work. And that is to give to those in need. To give to those in need. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 27, says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Proverbs 21. Let's, let's go to 22. Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. We work to give to those in need. We share what we earn with those who lack what is necessary. Ephesians 4.27 says the same thing. 1 Timothy 6.18, instruct the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. 
The fifth and final reason to work, and this is New Testament stuff, is to serve Jesus Christ your Lord and advance his cause. You gotta see this one. Turn over to, to Colossians chapter three. And with this, we'll close our time together. Colossians chapter three, verse 23. It's talking to slaves. In a modern context, it translates to working for others. And he says in verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily, notice this, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Messiah whom you serve. Listen, your vocation and all of your daily tasks, even if you were a slave, should and can be done for Jesus Christ your Lord. Do you understand the vast implications of this? You should do the work assigned for all of your classes this semester as if Jesus Christ were your professor. He is. You should do your work on the job as if Jesus Christ were your boss. He is. And if you will do your work for him and for his glory, then he will reward you. Chapter 3, verse 24, from the Lord you will receive the reward. Human bosses don't see everything. They miss some of the good things you do. Christ doesn't miss a single thing that you do in his name in the way it ought to be done, and he will reward you. During your time at Masters and in the years of work to come, remind yourself that work is a gift from God that reflects his character. It is a command of God that reflects his will. It is a duty that must be done God's way with diligence and with integrity and with humility. And it is a tool that will be used by God to fulfill his purposes and primarily for you as a believer. Whatever you do in this world, it is to serve Jesus Christ your Lord. That's a biblical philosophy of work. Let's pray together. Our Father, seal these truths to our hearts. May we not merely be hearers, but doers. Use these truths to affect how we do everything we do. And may we do it in a way that honors our Lord until he comes. We pray in Jesus' name.